Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Total Football Analysis EPL Podcast. We are the Thinking Fans Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and stat heads. In the end, we want to leave you with three or four cool, thoughtful bits about football. Today, I'm joined by Coach David Seymour, who works on scouting reports in the day and trains starlets in the early evening. I'm joined by Harshal Patel, the architect of dreams coming true. Finally, I'm joined by Sam Brotherton, a professional center back who is known as the cleaner, a.k.a. La Femme Nikita, as he tidies up after the team's messes on the pitch. He's a Kiwi who's plied his trade in Madison, Wisconsin, Sunderland, and now North Carolina FC. I am the host, Chris Mumford, known as the professor, Bella Chow. In our Cool to Know, we take on an alternative view on the Pogba-Fernandez combination, which will likely power the Man U engine room. Can they play nice in the midfield sandbox? We review the most unfortunate transfers this season. Show me the money. Finally, we look at the strength of schedule. We look at our crystal ball, er, well, spreadsheet, and prognosticate on the run-in. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth, the philosopher Jack Nicholson said. In our precog segment, we review the games of interest. Yes, we are actually previewing games instead of previews of previews. The season starts next week. Oh, my. Harshel, can you kick us off with the Man U midfield debate? Sure, Chris. So, um, I think United fans have been looking forward to watching Pogba and Fernandez play together ever since Fernandez joined the club in January. And he's done supremely well since he's joined. But obviously, Pogba has been injured and they've not got a chance to play together. But it looks like um, that sort of combination will be on the field um, from this week onwards, once games start. And while uh, it's going to be, I think it's going to work out really well because they're both, you know, spectacular players and they have immense creative abilities and they can create uh, goals for their teammates out of nowhere. I think um, there will still need to be a a sort of a set tactical uh, system that will have to be put in place for the two of them to thrive together. In my opinion, at least, um, I think uh, Solskjaer should should play a midfield diamond when he wants to play both of them together. And keep in mind that this may not be the case throughout the 10 games or so that United have left in the season because uh, everybody's coming back after a three-month layoff uh, and, and they won't be up to match fitness. So we can expect to see some rotation. But in the games that they do uh, start uh, together uh, for Fernandez and Pogba, I think United should play with the diamond because... That will give, uh, so you can have Fernandez at the tip of the diamond. You can have Pogba on the left as the left-sided sort of shuttler. And then you have two additional players in midfield to cover up defensively and also to provide the passes to Pogba and Fernandez in the sort of dangerous areas that they like to get into. So playing that will then allow Solskjaer to have McTominay and Fred or McTominay and Matic or basically two out of those three players in the midfield as well which will allow there to be defensive stability and will allow Pogba and Fernandez to go out and do their thing on the pitch freely. Not saying that it won't work in other systems, but I think if this, this system is the best one um, if you want the two of them to uh, perform at their best level and not really uh, have to carry the defensive burden. Sam, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think they're two really good players. Um, obviously, for United fans, the prospect of them playing together is exciting. 
um, yeah, tactically it's difficult to see how he's going to fit them in um, to a midfield, especially when players like McTominay and Fred have had such good seasons as well and deserve to be in the lineup. But uh, I think they'll figure it out. I think they're good players. Um, I think Pogger especially has some flexibility with athleticism, kind of where he can play as a, a six and eight or even a ten. Um, I just think it's interesting to see how long it kind of takes him to figure it out. Obviously, um, they've got to form those combinations, and it's going to take some time, uh, maybe a couple of months. So it, it'll be interesting kind of to see if they can use this like little bonus part of the kind of end of the part of the season um, to figure things out and then really form a partnership going into next season. Well, it'll be interesting as that partnership could make or break their Champions League uh, hopes there. Um, David, let's switch our attention. Can you talk to us about the sporting directors who wish they could do do-overs in the transfers? What were the biggest busts and why? Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I initially wanted to just talk about Seb Haller, who's at West Ham. Now that one's not quite worked out. Um, and I looked at the premises of, of players that were earning 100K uh, per week. And yes, Sebastian Allo is one who, who struggled this season. And I think it's fair to say Andre Gomez um, hasn't performed as Everton perhaps would have liked him to even. So I think those two were looking at players that were um, earning the big bucks, as it were. But one other one that I was surprised about was Christian Pulisic earning 145k a week, which makes him the third highest earner at Chelsea, which is is big money. But um, I mean, I'll let you you comment on that one, Chris. But I was inspired by by looking at these players and thinking, you know, perhaps who could have been uh, who could have done better this season after after big transfers. And um, I, I looked at this, the the players all earning over 100k in the Premier League. And sort of made a, a starting eleven as such with with, and these aren't players that were signed this season, but these are just still players that you would suggest haven't been on great contracts. And I think when we talk about clubs needing to be more sensible with their transfers, needing to use um, more thorough scouting processes than just talking to agents, for example, I think this is, I mean, obvious why. Um, yeah, I mean, so if you're not watching the video, if you're just listening. We've got Kepa in, in, in goal, um, who's on around 150k a week. And Arsenal doing both fullbacks. I know Socrates is actually a centre-back, but he has played a right-back this season. I couldn't actually find a right-back earning over 100k. Although Zabaleta is definitely worth a mention on 75k a week. But um, yeah, Arsenal have got a crazy uh, wage bill, rumoured to be around 100 million pounds. And um, they've got players such as Mesut Ozil on 350k a week. Um, Mustafi is on, I think, 90k. And the two I went with were, yeah, Kolasinac at left back and Socrates at right back, which I, I, I don't think either necessarily players to be building around for Arsenal by any means. And uh, I think Kolasinac is probably down to him being born as a free transfer. And then at centre-back, he's got Dejan Lovren and Sacco, who is at Palace. And, and Palace are a bit of a repeat offender in this list as well because in midfield, I, I, I put Maximilian Meyer as well, who is earning a lot of money. And um, I think he's played 13 times this season, but no goals, no assists. Hardly worth the money they're paying. Danny Drinkwater as well was another one who's um, who was brought in by Burnley on loan. And Burnley did a deal where they were paying, I think, 50K of his 110K a week deal. 
and I saw a report that said that they actually spent a million pounds, I think, for 149 minutes of football from Drinkwater. And we all know the issues that he's had off the pitch. Um, we mentioned Sebastian Aller. I think I've also mentioned Zabaleta. Felipe Anderson's had a disappointing season. He's only just under six figures, but but still that one hasn't, I don't think, quite panned out as West Ham had hoped, and particularly after a promising first season. But nevertheless, Jack Wilshere and Andre Yarmolenko are two players that are earning big money. And I would say, I mean, Wilshere, we know he's talented, but he can't stay fit. And of course, Yarmolenko, the, the times that I've seen Yarmolenko play, I've just been so disappointed in him. I think technically he's, he's good, but he doesn't have a lot else going on. And he hits the ball really well with his left foot. And that's about it. And I think um, I think Bruce Dortmund did, did well by offloading him to us for around 20 million, I think, as well. And up front, you've got two players that six, seven years ago, you would have, would have been surprised to see him in here. But there we go. I mean, that's the case of buying players on a reputation. You've got Benteke, who's still at Palace, and Walcott, who's still at Everton. So that wage bill there, just from those uh, 11 players, is well over a million a week. And um, I don't think many of us would take that as a starting eleven. So, I, sorry, because I did move away slightly from just transfers, but I was inspired by bad value in the Premier League. So, how many, how many of these players do you think are affected by the systems they've come into versus the systems they were in in the past? That's a great question. Um, I, think, I think Benteke is probably really the only one that I would look at right there and say, oh, maybe it's the system because he was so effective with direct football and I haven't seen a great deal of Palace this season, but having had a pretty disappointing start to his spell at Palace and had a disappointing spell overall at Liverpool, I don't think clubs are going to base themselves around the way that Benteke would, would be favoured to play. And, and the rest of those players there, I just think are players that have fallen away for one reason or another. And I think you have to be so careful when you bring players in on big wages and do they still have something left to prove? I think you could have said the likes of Yarmolenko, Wilshere, Walcott. When those players were brought in by their clubs, did they still have a point to prove? Were they still hungry to play? And I know it sounds a little bit cliche, but there seems to be a sort of recurring theme with players who maybe have one or two very good seasons when they're younger and have just petered out and are sitting on huge contracts now. Sam, I'm going to put you on the spot. You're a player. What, what do you, when you hear stuff like that, what's, what's your take? Yeah, it's tough because obviously these guys are all great players in their own right. Um, you look at players like Wilshire, Drinkwater has a Premier League winner's medal, um, Walcott, Benteke, all of their different times have had amazing contributions in the Premier League. So they obviously have the ability. I think, yeah, you, you mentioned, um, systems in terms of tactics but also just environments I think are huge um I don't know like obviously Danny Drinkwater was part of a really successful Leicester team which obviously um they talked a lot about the strong team culture that they developed there so I think it can be difficult to transition into a new club and if you don't settle in early and kind of get those that minutes and those minutes under your belt um it can be a difficult adjustment so yeah it's hard to say often hard to pinpoint where things go wrong but um yeah Definitely a, a team that's not performing at their best uh, at this point in time. Would, would, would any of you take any of those players? If, and I'm not saying if you're thinking of, about this like Harshaw as a Man United fan, I'm just talking if you were a Premier League team, 
what, how many of those players would you take in your starting eleven right now, ignoring wage? I, I think you... argue. I mean, I can't really think of anyone. Uh, the one player I might argue a bit of a case for is Max Meyer because he was rated extremely highly when he came over from Schalke. I think he came over on a free transfer. His deal at Schalke expired and he came to Palace and it was a coup by Palace, right? That they picked up someone who was... I don't, I don't remember whether he's actually played for Germany, but I know he's been in and around the national team about three or four years ago for Germany, which should tell you again that he is extremely talented because Germany itself has so many good young players that he was the fact that he was around that squad means that he did have a lot of talent. But I think he just hasn't... And to go back to the earlier point about tactics and systems, I don't think that the way Palace play fits him at all. He's, I think he's used to a more expansive style of play. He is a playmaker. And Palace, I mean just do not have that style of play in them. It's just about trying to protect their own goal and trying to nick a goal on the counter through uh, through Wilfred Zaha. I mean, as I'm not trying to be disrespectful to Palace, but that's basically what their game plan has been. So I can see why he struggled. And I personally think that he still might have something to offer for other clubs if they can pick him up. Chris, would you not would you not take Kepa at uh, top? Like, let's say, I, I personally think, I know he had a bad season, but I still believe that Kepa is good enough from what I've seen before this year to bounce back from this. And maybe there was things going on off the pitch, there's certainly suggestions that there were. Um, would you yeah. have him at, let's say, a top 10 club? I mean, maybe you don't agree that he should be Chelsea's number one, but surely he's good enough to, to be a Premier League starter. Yeah, I, I think my, my general take uh, is, is similar to Sam's. I, I think a lot of it, good fit with the system and, and the player, good fit with the coaches and the player, and then just general locker room mojo, irrespective of the off, off stuff. So I, I look at things less in a, um, a linear fashion when it comes to this and more just, it's like throwing stuff in a pot. You just don't know how, where it's going to go. Uh, and someone that's played extraordinarily well in one place, for some reason, the mojo is not right. I think Polisic is a perfect example of that. Injury, you throw in the injury piece as well, and you know we don't. And hopefully he gets enough of an opportunity to to show because uh, at times he was really striking. As far as Kepa goes, I'm staying along the Chelsea mode. Um, I believe Chelsea was rushed. I'm sorry, Kepa was rushed a bit too much, right? Um, I think he's in his early twenties. Um, you know, I I I also I think what he did uh, at with one of the games with Saudi is absolutely unforgivable. Um, you do not uh, openly defy a coach, particularly on international television. But, um, uh, you know, I think he's probably, hopefully he's going to round out. The confidence is going to bounce back. You know, confidence is such a large determinant when it comes to coaching. And I would argue for many of these players here, I wonder where their, their levels of confidence are. I'll, I'll say this. I do think before any Liverpool fans have a go at me, I do think Lovren's definitely good enough to still be a starter at Premier League level without question. But if we jump back to the, the, the finance side, I don't know whether it would make sense financially for a lot of teams to take on the same deal that he's on at Liverpool. I also think Kolasinac is good enough to be playing Premier League football, but again, on that sort of wage. And you spoke about Meyer as well, harsh on, I think, that's the risk when you take players on free transfers. You're not paying those big transfer fees so the agents know that you can afford a little bit more on wage. Yeah. I think that's yeah, a, as a Liverpool fan. I, I'm sorry, Chris. Um, go ahead, I think Lovren's a really interesting one. I think he's one that could potentially benefit from a move away from, uh, from Anfield because he has made some high-profile mistakes uh, in the past, and I think that does really affect his confidence. But 
I agree with you, David. I think he there's a good player in there, and I think um, possibly a change environment, whether that is, is still in the Premier League in England or overseas, could see him uh, kind of come into his own again and have a, a really good season or two. Super. Well, let's go ahead and switch gears to the strength of schedule. Um, so, well, starting to take a look up at the Champions League level, um, looking at three spots, I think it's it's fair to say that Liverpool has, has got the Champions League locked down. Um, I think Man City, um, without an absolute miracle, I imagine they're going to have spend at least a year away from uh, from the Champions League. So, if we take a look at uh, those that have the easiest uh, schedule as well as those that have the hardest schedule. Um, so right now we've got Leicester at eight points above the cut, Chelsea three, Man U at zero, Wolves at minus two, Sheffield at minus two, Tottenham at minus four, and Arsenal at minus five, barely hanging on there. So I think the key takeaway is the folks that have it uh, the easiest First of all, I think Leicester with eight points, uh, being eight points ahead and uh, have only nine games to play, I, I like their chances very much. They are going to have to play Chelsea and Man U, um, which are going to be real challenges. Um, but uh, I think the folks that are going to have the easiest are, is going to be Man U. Uh, in terms of top five teams, they play Leicester in the last week of the season. Um, they do have Tottenham and Sheffield up up front. But otherwise, their schedule is is mid to lower table teams. Um, so I, I think Man U may be a big beneficiary of uh, a, a easier schedule uh, on the run in. Uh, the Wolves, who are uh, two points below the cut, uh, are have a pretty easy schedule except for Chelsea in that last week, and they're the, the ninth game that they have left. They do have Arsenal and Sheffield United in in the middle of there. Um, but um, one really likes their chances a lot. I worry a li- quite a bit about Chelsea because um, they're going to have to deal with not only Leicester, but the one-two punch of Man City and Liverpool. Um, the other folks that I think have it pretty tough, I want to, I want to believe in the Sheffield dream, but uh, they're going to have to play Man U, Chelsea, and Leicester uh, in addition to Tottenham and the Wolves. So um, they probably got the toughest uh, remaining um, fixture list, uh, closely matched by Arsenal, which are going to have to hit Leicester, Liverpool, and Man City again, along with the Wolves and Tottenham. Anybody have any thoughts on the uh, this the final three spots here? I think with the with when you're looking at fixtures right to the end of the season. We look at league position for who are the hardest teams to play against. But what I've found in recent years is you really want to be playing the teams that have nothing to play for as it comes to the end of the season. So if you can have a run-in that avoids playing um, as many of the people that need to get wins at, say, the Champions League or for Europa League football, or teams that need to win to avoid the relegation zone. So immediately you're looking at the teams that are like Burnley, Palace... Uh, Newcastle, Southampton, Everton, who are kind of close enough to no man's land in the league. I think once Liverpool have won the title, you're going to see them playing a lot of younger players as well. So, for example, Chelsea on the penultimate uh, game of the season where they're playing Liverpool, I would imagine Liverpool will definitely have the title wrapped up by then. So, that'd be a difficult game, 
you would much rather be playing Liverpool when they don't have to win than when they do have to win. So I think when you look at these fixtures, you need to look at who are playing the teams that might not have something to play for when they have to play them. Mm-hmm. Herschel, do you have any, any thoughts on this? I completely agree with David that uh, it is a benefit. I mean, as long as you can play those teams, as many of those teams just don't have a lot to play for, you know, you, there is a chance, there's a better chance for you to win. So, uh, and also the fact that uh, in this season now, I mean, whatever the mini season that we have now with nine or 10 games for every team, there's not going to be any fans in the stadium as well. So a lot of the home advantage that you would normally associate with teams is not going to be there because a majority of it is the fans in the stadium. I mean, yes. Have you, sorry, have you, have you purposely spelt Tottenham, Tottingham? <laughs> oh, I just noticed that as well. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for pointing that out globally, David. Uh, so, uh, spelling I mean, wasn't my strongest suit. I thought it was, I thought it was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move along to the next chart. Thank you. Um, let's move to the strength of schedule for the relegation. Uh, so the very short of it is, is that uh, the teams in order are uh, Southampton, seven points above the cut, Brighton, two, uh, West Ham and Watford are even, zero, zero, along with Bournemouth, uh, and then Aston Villa at minus two and, and Norwich at minus six. So uh, Southampton seems to be blessed in that they're seven points above the cut and they seem to have the easiest schedule. They do have man, the, the two mans, Man City and Man U, uh, and Arsenal and Sheffield. But compared to the other folks, uh, it's, they're, they're in, in a very good position. As far as the team that has it the hardest um, is the team right underneath them in terms of points, uh, which, which is Brighton. They have Leicester, Man U, Liverpool, Man City, uh, and as well as Arsenal. So they have a real murderer's road that they have to get through. So those are going to be some very interesting pieces. I think my takeaway is each one of these teams are going to have three or four difficult matches. Um, So what's going to happen in those remaining matches are going to determine their relegation fate. Um, Any any thoughts on that, Sam? Yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be fascinating um, watching the relegation battle. Um, I think it's almost more interesting uh, now the Premier League is essentially being wrapped up by Liverpool. It's going to be really interesting to, to watch how it develops. Obviously, there's a lot of teams in there that are kind of scrapping for their lives, and we all know the value of um, staying in the Premier League. So I think it's really hard to predict. Um, like you said, there's kind of a similar strength of schedule for a lot of these teams um, coming to, to the end of the season. So, yeah, it's one of those ones that it's tough to predict. Um, it's crazy things happen in these relegation battles and towards the end of the season. So, yeah, looking forward to, to following it. As a common professional courtesy, I will ask David uh, about uh, the relegation battle with his West Ham team in there. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I think we'll be. All, I think we'll be all right. But perhaps I'm just being optimistic. I think if you look at both Brighton and Norwich, uh, uh, sorry, not Brighton Norwich. If you just look at Brighton uh, to begin with, they've got to play obviously Arsenal, Leicester, Liverpool, United, City, and I think that just puts a huge amount of pressure on the Norwich, Burnley, Newcastle and Southampton games. So I think they're going to struggle. And Villa is the other one as well. I mean, looking at that run in, 
they've got to play Chelsea Wolves, Liverpool United and Arsenal still. And of course, they've got to play against West Ham on the last game of the season, which I'd imagine will probably be a must-win game for both teams, but it is at West Ham. Harshel, any, any final notes? Um, just that, as you uh, mentioned, the fact that most of these teams do have some of the big teams to play, so it will be important that they pick up points against the teams which the other the other teams that they're playing and also the fact that a lot of them are playing each other in the run-in so there are there is potent there are quite a few sort of relegation six pointers that are going to happen so as david said on the last day of the season villa play west ham which could end up deciding which one goes down but even otherwise norwich still have to play brighton watford and west ham so if they can get say five or seven points from those games they're automatically denying their direct competitors those points as well so i think all of the teams at the bottom which have games against each other, those games are actually going to be very, very pivotal. Super. Well, let's turn our attention to the pre-cog and have a look at what previews are coming on. So let's start with the game that everyone is highly anticipating, two well-known coaches and former players, high stakes and drama. We are talking about the Aston Villa and Sheffield United game. Or wait, 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 wait. We're talking about the other game first. The Luke, I am your father match of Man City versus Arsenal. Jedi Master Pep and Jedi <laughs> Disciple Mikel. What mind tricks will be used to fix the faulty back lines? Luis or Laporte? David, can you walk us through this galactic battle? Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be an interesting one. I think you're going to see Arsenal probably go there 4-2-3-1. I think you're going to continue to see Ozil play behind Lacazette with uh, Pepe and Aubameyang either side of them. And I think, again, you'll see Ceballos and Shaq uh, going behind them too. I wonder, though, I do wonder if, if Arteta will potentially use this break as a chance to sort of bring in a couple of, not necessarily new faces, but... Bringing some players to the team that are going to be there next season. Um, those players I've mentioned there, there are big question marks as to who will be there next season. And again, when you talk about at the back, David Luiz isn't going to be there. I would suggest that he'll probably play Pablo Mari and, and David Luiz, but I don't know what Rob Holding's been, been doing. I know that he had injury. He always seems to have injury problems, but I don't know how his, his sort of uh, break has gone and whether... Arsenal fans would be keen to see him come and play Mario. I think Mario would be there, whatever. But, I mean, City beat them 3-0 last time uh, in the league and dominated possession. And Arsenal just aren't as good without possession. They've only had eight league games this season where they've had less than 50% possession and they've only won one of those eight games. And even then, they had 49.76% possession, so barely under 50%. I would expect City to dominate possession and. Um, I, I think it'll be a routine win for City. I imagine they're going to go a 4-3-3. I'm excited to see whether Foden gets a bit more game time going in towards the final stretch. Uh, I would imagine Walker will be dropped to the bench following his antics. I, I can't imagine Pep was too thrilled with that. Um, before the break, Mahrez was having a good run. I think you could see him and Sterling either side of Aguero, but at the same time, I wouldn't be surprised to see Gabriel Jesus either, look, anywhere in that front three, to be honest with you. Um, but yeah, I think it'll be comfortable win for City, and I'm going to go three nil. Sam, what's your take? Yeah, it's hard to tell. It's hard to predict these things um, coming out of such a long break. But I think 
I have to agree with David. I think Man City will be, be too good at the end of the day. Um, I think Arteta is still kind of finding his feet and trying to get his philosophy across to the Arsenal players. And they've still kind of got that defensive instability that they've struggled with. Um, yeah, I think that Man City are going to be too good at the end of the day and we'll have a comfortable one as well. Uh, you got a score line you want to – are you a 3-0 score line as well or what do you want? I'll go 2-0. Two, 2-0. Two zero. Super. Well, why don't we go ahead and, and uh, preview uh, our next match, which actually will have some consequences in terms of Champions League and relegation spots. Sheffield United versus Aston Villa. Y'all know I have a soft spot for a coach named Dean Smith who manages a team playing in Carolina Blue. But in this case, there is no Michael Jordan. I'm talking about the Dean Smith of Aston Villa playing against the likely <laughs> manager of the year, Chris Wilder. Harshel, can you talk about the matchup and the consequences? Yep, definitely. So this is the big game that's kicking off the sort of mini season that we're going to have on Thursday night. And uh, I think obviously both teams need a win to keep their respective uh, to keep on track to get their respective ambitions which is Villa obviously want to stay in the Premier League and Sheffield United have had a dream run and they could potentially get into the Champions League spots so in terms of tactics and formation I, I think Sheffield United are going to line up as they have throughout the season with their back three um, they have agreed to deal with uh, Manchester United to keep Dean Henderson at the at the club till the end of the season so Henderson's going to be between the sticks. You're going to have Jack, uh, Jack O'Connell, John Egan, uh, Chris, uh, Chris Basham at, as the back three. Uh, George Baldock and Ender Stevens as the wingbacks. Um, the only question would be in midfield where they bought Sanderberg uh, in, in the January transfer window and he has played a bit in, instead of John Lindstrom. So that is the only sort of question mark because Oliver Norwood and John Fleck will probably play the other two roles and then you've got uh, your two strikers up front who could be any of Callum Robinson, Ollie McBurney, or uh, um, I'm tending to forget the other strikers they have on the books, but basically Musa. they're going to have those. Yeah, Les Mousset. So um, any of those, two of those three. So tactically, I think, again, this break would have done them a bit of good in terms of uh, sort of being able to go away and get away from the, the hype around them in, in a way. But also for Chris Wilder to sort of reinforce the, the patterns of play that we've seen with Sheffield United. So expect them to be well-drilled, expect them to uh, keep it tight at the back. And uh, in terms of Villa, uh, they, they will have one very key player back. So John McGinn is back from injury and I'm not sure if he will start the game, but he is going to have some involvement. Dean Smith has said that he will be involved. So that straight away then raises the question of whether um, Dean Smith will still continue to play Jack Grealish out on the left or will he put him in uh, a central position either um, if say Villa play a 4-1-4-1 will he play as one of the central midfielders or they could even line up in a 4-4-1-1 as they did in the Carabao Cup final against City where Grealish played behind the striker so um, it's, it'll be interest, interesting to see how Dean Smith uses Grealish now that McGinn is back in midfield uh, but in terms of the other two, so they don't have Tom Heaton back. They don't have uh, uh, Samata back. So, it, I mean, it will be... I, I don't see this being a high-scoring game. or it, I don't really know if it will be an exciting game. But obviously, it is a game which has consequences at both ends of the table. And personally, I think it will be a one-all draw. I think both teams will score and they'll probably cancel each other out a little bit because it's the first game back. You can expect to see some fatigue 
come in as well around the R mark and all of that. So probably going to be a one-all draw according to me. David, I'll jump in on that just quickly. I think that Villa, obviously we know Villa have got real defensive issues and Sheffield United create good chances. They do, I mean, they create the best expected goals per shot in the league. And I, having, having watched Sheffield play a fair few times this season, they are really hard to break down, particularly if they go ahead. And they are just constantly fighting. I think, I think Villa are going to really struggle against Sheffield United. I think it's a bad matchup for Villa. I, I think it'll be a, a comfortable win for Sheffield United. Well, now we'll talk about the Maryside, Maryside Derby, which will have plenty of... Chris, Chris, hold on. Yeah. Merseyside. Merseyside. Forgive my Southern accent. The Merseyside uh, Derby, which will have plenty of fight despite being in the shadow of Liverpool's massive, massive lead in the Premier League. Will Ancelotti be able to out-tactic the big red machine? Sam, what do you expect and how could an upset happen? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a very different Merseyside derby. Um, obviously, the derby game used to the passion of the fans, but that's not going to be the case now with uh, with COVID. Um, I think the start of the game is going to be really important. Obviously, it's unfortunate for Everton. They don't have that home support or that tight kind of Goodison Park and have the fans on top of them to help them uh, really create an atmosphere. But I think it's also significant for Liverpool because they play with such a high-intensity style of play. So how are they going to create that atmosphere and intensity for themselves? It's interesting to see how the team start the game and who kind of uh, gets on the front foot. But also, it'll be interesting to see how the teams end the game because I think um, coming off this break, teams have managed to have friendly games, but they haven't had any uh, competitive fixtures for a long time. So fitness could come into effect and um, the substitutes could, could play, play an important role. I know... Um, Klopp has spoken really highly about players like Keita and Minamino who haven't played as much uh, as big big roles this season. Um, they've supposedly been been looking really good in training and we're at the forefront of a, a 6-0 win um, in a, against Blackburn Rovers recently in a friendly game. So, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting um, to look kind of both the both bookends of the game and uh, I think those could be important factors. Um, in terms of key matchups, I think that the Everton looking like the to line up in a 4-4-2 as they have done this season. Um, I think that's kind of un- something that's a little uncommon these days. Most most teams play with one striker, so having Donovan Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison up there will be a bit of a challenge for the Liverpool back four, so that'll be uh, interesting to watch and see how they handle that. Um, I think a little injury cloud is hanging, hanging over Andy Robertson at the moment. He didn't feature in that, that friendly win over Blackburn. Um, and I think that's one area of Liverpool's squad where they don't have a significant depth, depth in terms of a, a backup left back. So they'll be really hoping they can get him in the lineup. Um, if not, if he's not in the lineup, I think that's a potential area for Everton to, to, Everton, sorry, to exploit. Um, but if Liverpool have their first choice uh, starting 11 out in the field, I really don't see a way that, that Everton are going to win. Um, maybe that's me being a little bit biased, but I think uh, most people would tend to agree with me on that one. So I'm going for a 2 0 Liverpool win. And uh, yeah. Can't wait to see the boys back in action. David, any any counter thoughts? I think I think set pieces, crosses are going to be a big thing. Both Liverpool and Everton combined have 26 headed goals this season. So I think that that'll be important. I think that they're both in the top five in uh, the top five European leagues, I'm pretty sure, for headed goals. So we could well see a... Um, a set piece making a difference. I think it's going to be actually a bit more of a tighter game. Just to jump on what uh, Sam was really saying, yeah, I mean, the four four two definitely has gone out of fashion, but I think it's it's come back in 
um, in a big way this season, and particularly in Spain. A lot of teams are playing the 4-4-2 and it's, it's, a, great, it's a great formation to, to press out of, um, to sit in a, a tight defensive shape. And I think that you're seeing teams, particularly in La Liga, the likes of Ibar, uh, Granada, Hetafe, who are less talented than some of the teams technically. Uh, level the field with their systems. And I think Everton will look to do the same in this game. When they last played Liverpool in the league, they played a 5-4-1 to begin with and they conceded three goals really quickly and they changed it to the 4-4-2, which they've used uh, pretty frequently throughout the season and, and actually did a lot better. I think they ended that game with... I could be wrong. I, I think they might have ended that game with a higher expected goals, which is crazy because I don't remember what the scoreline was, but it wasn't complimentary to Everton. Um yeah, I think, I think you're going to see them sit in and concede possession purposefully against Liverpool and, and try and catch them on the counter. So I still think Liverpool will win, but I think it'll be, I think it'll be close. I'll go 2-1 and I think Everton will score a set, please. Super. Well, let's turn our attention to two teams who are punching in almost the same way with Champions League implications. Both now healthy Man U and Tottenham. Kane versus Rashford, hopefully with some sun shining. Harshel? How do you see this one playing out? Um, I think this has the potential to be one of the best sort of games since football restarts. It's on the Friday night, so I mean, technically it will be the second game back, but even when you look at the entire fixture list over the weekend as well. Um, United, as I said earlier in, in the segment about Pogba and Fernandez, I think the fact, I mean, I think they should start with a diamond also because um, Spurs will probably have problems in central areas in terms of defending that sort of half space and defending um, the space be- uh, between the centre-backs and uh, and the central midfielders because Mourinho is most likely going to go with, uh, based on friendlies that have been played by Spurs in the last week, the most likely midfield pairing he's going to go, or if he goes with a midfield three, it's going to be in Dombele. Um, in Dombele, Winks and uh, Musa Sissoko, which and neither of none of them are sort of renowned for their positional sense or their defensive ability. So, if United do play a diamond, I think there'll be a lot of opportunity for Pogba and Fernandez to get into those sort of pockets of space between in front of the uh, in front of Spurs' defensive line and and be able to um, create chances for the strikers. And again, you, that would also give United the chance to play with two strikers up front. So whether that's Rashford and Martial, or Martial and Dan James, or uh, you know any again any two of those three, uh, that would again with their pace that would cause Spurs significant problems. So, other than that, I think United are going to have their first choice back four with Van Bissaka, Lindelof, uh, Maguire, and Shaw. They here in goal. It's just about the, the way the midfield sets up. With regard to Spurs, they're going to have Son and Kane back to full fitness and most likely going to start, which is going to be a huge boost. So there, I mean, there is a lot of potential for them to be able to pull off a result in this game because Steven Bergwijn, who was also injured, who was signed earlier this season, is also fit. So I can see them getting something from this game, but it depends on how they do defensively because going forward, if they play with a 4-3-3 and they have Kane, uh, Son and Bergwijn, that is quite a, quite an effective and it can be quite a dangerous trio. So it depends on how they deal with uh, United's threat defensively. If United do play that diamond, um, again, I'm I'm probably going to hedge my bets a little bit and go for a one-one. But if I mean, I think United might just be able to make a two-one. But if you had to ask me to bet on it, I'd probably say one-one. Sam, what's your take on the game? 
Yeah, I think it's a great matchup, actually. Um, two teams who have got some really great plays, and um, it's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds. Obviously, Mourinho against his, his old club. Um, I think, yeah, Tottenham will probably kind of continue to take a more defensive approach, and it'll be up to Man United to break them down. I guess Man United fans are still excited about that Pogba-Fernandez combination and really see whether they have the ability to kind of break down a, d- a deeper block than Mourinho uh, likes to go with. So we'll see how that goes. And, uh, yeah, I think it'll potentially be, like Hashel said, one of the most exciting games uh, when we're getting started back up. What's your scoreline? Um, I'm going to go 2-1 Tottenham just to uh, <laughs> play, deal with, play deal with advocate, yeah. <laughs> Super. Well, good. Well, let's preview another one of those big impact matches on Champions League and relegation spots. Will the Wolves feast on West Ham? David, walk us through this match. Yeah, I think think Wolves are going to be a difficult matchup for West Ham just because of of, of their formation. I think West Ham... I'll explain West Ham first because, and then, then we can explain why Wolves are going to probably beat us. But... What we've seen from from West Ham so far this season is Seb Pallo has been left isolated a lot of the time, and Moyes has recently moved Antonio to play alongside him, and he's looked Hallo's looked better when he has someone alongside him. Surprisingly, because and I say surprisingly entirely sarcastically, by the way, um, because that that's what Hallo played with at Frankfurt. That's why we signed Hallo. He played really well with Jovic and Ante Rebic just behind him. And we've left out there by himself this season. And funny enough, it hasn't worked. So they played Antonio with him. That's not a long-term fix, but I think it'll be enough to get us through to the end of the season. I don't know what's going on with Albin Ajayti, who um, we signed in the summer from Basel, I want to say. I think it was from Basel. And he's hardly featured at all, to be honest with you. How many has he hasn't looked great? And we spent 20 million on him, which is, which is good money for West Ham. So. We'll probably play with some some variety of four four two, I would imagine. And 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 then uh, the thing is, well, first of all, our defensive record is really poor. And I think that you, when you've got someone like Raúl Jiménez and you've got players like Hamutinho, Ruben Neves, who are both really good ball progressors, then that's an issue. And I think they 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 obviously play the back three, and. I can't be the only West Ham fan that's felt that we've been far too easy to penetrate from central areas this season. When you have that back three, the wide centre-backs are able to hit um, the, the centre, the central passage a lot easier because they're sort of operating in wider areas or even in the half spaces. And those angles are perfect for playing balls to cut through a midfield straight into the centre-forwards. So I think you're going to see Wolves look to play up from the back three. I think they're going to beat our press. I think West Ham are going to struggle. Um, with just, I, I, I can see them blowing through us through the centre of the pitch, and I just don't particularly trust our defence either. So um, we'll have to wait and see what happens there. But I'm not very confident. <laughs> I think uh, I think Wolves will win comfortably. I think it'll be two 0 win for Wolves. Arshel, do you have any anything else, Dad? Um, I mean, as much as I'd like West Ham to win for David, but I think um, I'd have to agree with that because also. Uh, the fact that they play a 4-4-2 and the fact that the midfield duo is Declan Rice and Mark Noble at, at most times, I mean, I don't think that's the most mobile midfield in any case. And I think you need a mobile midfield duo when you're playing a, when you're playing a 4-4-2 and you just have the two midfielders in there. Especially, as, as David said, when you've got the likes of Moutinho and uh, Neves up in front of you. Um, 
and and to be honest i'm not really convinced with rice as a midfielder either i think he's he looks like what he is which is that he is a converted center back playing in midfield rather than a natural in the position um i don't think he's good enough on the ball definitely and i can see david shaking his head there uh, but um, at least especially if 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 i don't think mess up have the midfield if nothing else to be able to cope with uh, wolves david would you like to have a final <laughs> word on this and yeah i i can disagree with the rice point more i think that rice is now standing uh, defensive midfielder um, the stats back that up as well. He wins a, a, a huge amount of defensive duels and he's involved in a lot as well. But I don't think he has a passing range, David. If he does get the ball back, the evolve is the passing range. But at the same time, I don't have him down as a as a deep line playmaker. He's a ball winning midfielder, and um, he was certainly improving that game. But he's not the sort of player that's going to hang back and hit those long long diagonal passes to switch play. But I, I wouldn't want him to. He wins the ball and he recycles it well. Um, he's a phenomenal tackler and tackling is something that I'm not actually overly fussed about. Um, I, I think that it's a, it's a dying art and for a reason within the game, but he reads the game beautifully. And the, the, the issue is a lot of people have made their mind up on him from watching him play for England and he's had some bad games for England. But you know, I've watched him every week for West Ham for, since, since he's come into the team and he is without question a, a top four, top five player. And Listen, if if you want us to keep him for an extra year, I will happily take him. But I've got a very strong feeling he's going to leave this summer and I don't think it will be a cheap transfer either. Yeah, fair enough. But yeah, what my point was that was basically when I, that's basically what I meant when I said that he looks like a converted centre-back in the sense that he's brilliant at the defensive side of things, but um, the passing is obviously not there. But when you have Noble as well, who again, I, it's basically that I don't think West Ham have enough creativity in the midfield when they do have the ball. Would, would you say players like Wilfred Ndidi then are, are good players that are passers of the ball? I think Ndidi is helped by the fact that he has the likes of Telemans and uh, Madison I, to I, give the ball. I, I'd hate to see Rice leave, but I think he would slot in perfectly next to Jorginho at Chelsea, particularly if Kante is to leave this summer. Yeah, I can, yeah so it, it does come down to the system in which he plays, I guess, and the players he has around him. Sam, do you, do you have a, a, an opinion on this as a current defender? Yeah, I mean, I think um, Rice obviously his strengths are his, his defensive instincts and the way that he um, he tackles and breaks up the play. So, yeah, I think it would be unfair to say that he's not a a good midfielder. Um, I think he is a certain type of midfielder in terms of yeah, like David said, he breaks up play. He's a defensive midfielder, so I think he's still super young as well. So he's definitely going to have time to develop his range of passing and maybe become a more complete player. Um, yeah, but I think. He needs to be asked to do what he's good at, and that's going to be where he's at his best is when he has probably someone next to him or a little further in front of him who can kind of uh, be a little more creative and he can focus on doing the, the dirty side of the game. Super. Well, that wraps up our pod. Let's get ready to watch some football. <laughs> We'd like to thank Total Football Analysis, the world's largest open source soccer analyst community please visit www.totalfootballanalysis.com. Join us on our next Football Thinking Fans podcast. For now, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao.